All right, so I really like monkeys. Primates of all kinds, really, most especially the great apes. So I wanted to go see some in the wild, right? So I lived on rice and beans, saved some money, and went to Indonesia. Bad timing. The day I touched down, a small civil war erupted right where the orangutans live. And the locals said, well, look, this happens from time to time. Just wait a few days, maybe things calm down. So I hang out in the capital, Jakarta. It's cool, everything's cool. And that's when I hear you can sneak and cross over into the orangutan area. You just have to find someone to take you. For real? How? Well, there's this guy who heard from another guy who talked to this man that the place to make arrangements is McDonald's. Mickey D's, the large McDonald's right near Embassy Row. So I go there and I see two groups of people that ain't there for hamburgers. For a moment, I'm confused. At one table sits some serious bearded brothers. In front of them, tired, gaunt-looking men line up, hand-folded, waiting. Then the first approaches the table, head bowed, respectful, respectful, serious business going on. Nobody's buying Happy Meals. The skinny man leans in close, whispers over the table, and I follow his gesture as he points outside and see his family waiting four or five kids, the wife, her face covered in her job. Everybody's serious, little kids, serious. These people are not going on orangutan safari. The refugees, Muslims running from war, first to Malaysia, then to Indonesia, and finally, hopefully, their new land of opportunity, Australia. Australia, they hear it's a place where they can finally raise their families in peace. But they don't have any papers, no visas, no passports, no documentation. They're taking this journey the hard way. And these are the men they pay everything they have to make it possible. Outside the door, this little quiet boy, he's staring intently, scanning his father for a sign of something. What's going to come next? And he's a real, real little kid. But you just know that he knows how much they have riding on this conversation. He's not whining. He's not asking for french fries, milkshakes, apple pie. He's just staring at his dad, willing something good to happen. This whole drama unfolds in hushed, whispered tones, real decisions, real consequence. But at the next table, people are louder, angry. You can hear whole tearful conversations, Germans, American, French, surrounding Indonesians. Please, please, I need to see the monkeys. I need to see them myself, please, please. And I realize that's the line I'm supposed to be standing in. But I can't do it, not now, uh-uh, no way, no way. See, I decide that my little trip to see the orangutans and the monkeys, it's just gonna have to wait. Today, on Snap Judgment, crossing borders. There are lines in the sand, lines on the map, lines in the mind, huge barricades of language, culture, thought that we erect between us. And most people can never jump over those walls. Some do, some have to. And these people, my friends, these people have got stories. My name is Glenn Washington. Get ready, because you're listening snap judgment. When you start looking into what a border really is, you discover that things can get pretty shady pretty quickly. Who owns what can depend on which side of an invisible demarcation line you're standing on, and that's where our next guest comes in, an international bounty hunter of the high seas. Max Hardberger spends his days in a place where nationality does not exist, a place where laws are murky and borders are fluid. That's because Max is a captain of international waters, and over the years, he's built a career as a repo man for the high seas. He hunts down stolen ships and brings them back to their owners. 
And in 2004, after a decade of doing this work, Max got the most dangerous job of his career, returning the Maya Express. At 600 and something feet long, 10 stories high, and 10,000 tons dead weight, the Maya Express was a large, huge white elephant. What had happened originally was kind of a notorious pirate in the Caribbean. He went on board. He paid the crew who were behind in their wages. They stole the vessel from the Dominican Republic and delivered it to a small port in Haiti. Max had learned from his Haitian friend Ronald that the Maya Express was docked in the bay of a small fishing village called Miraguan. The pirate had bribed a local judge to seize the Maya Express and then sell it back to him at a corrupt auction. So if Max got caught taking the Maya Express, he'd be breaking Haitian law and be thrown in prison. If things went bad with this extraction, I would never get out. And this year, the potential risks were even greater because Haiti was in a state of turmoil. This was in the middle of the 2004 revolution. I had a lot of friends in Haiti who had left. They just barely got out because of the lawlessness and violence. But Max wanted the job. So he flew to Port-au-Prince where he met his friend Ronald to come up with a scheme for seizing the ship. For this to work, Max would need to get a tugboat close to the Maya Express for two reasons. First, he needed to tow it out of the bay. And second, he needed to get close enough to the ship to cut the anchor chains. When I got there, we found out that there were two armed guards on board who were selling diesel off of the ship's fuel to local Haitians. I had Ronald arrange for a, a local fisherman to row me out to the ship. And Ronald and I pretended that I was a foreign tugboat owner and I wanted to bring my tugboat and buy some diesel from them. And then I told him that we'd be back at midnight with the tug. As a foreigner, Max knew he would draw unwanted attention to the operation that night. So he hired local Haitians to help him with the job and then bribed his way onto a Russian ship that was at anchor in the bay. This way he could coordinate the mission without being seen. The tugboat arrived right around midnight, and when the guards, when they came on the dock, I had a couple of Ronald friends convince the guards not to go back on board the ship. They paid the guards $600 to abandon the ship. After the guards took the money, the tugboat crew began cutting the anchor chains with a cutting torch. And that's when things got messy. My heart sank when I saw the light of that cutting torch. The entire scene was completely lit up like a movie set. You could see every tree, every rock, every crevice of the hillside. The locals were gathering at the dock to watch the scene. Freeing the ship was taking much longer than Max had planned. The thief had one final trick. He had tied a heavy-duty cable to the dock. And when the tugboat started pulling on the ship, the cable came up taut and it couldn't go any further. So the tugboat crew had to rush to the back of the ship and cut the cable. And when they freed the ship, heavy winds created a much bigger problem. I saw the Maya Express turn sideways in the channel. That meant that it was aground. The winds began pushing the Maya Express towards the shore, and it looked like the ship was stuck. Max knew it was only a short amount of time before authorities realized he was trying to steal the ship. He needed to escape before anyone could trace it back to him. So he decided to bail on the mission and dive off the Russian ship. I ran back out on the wing of the bridge, threw my leg up on the, on the bulwark to jump over into the ocean. But for one instant, I decided to look again before I jumped. The Maya Express began turning again. The ship was finally in the clear, and the tug began towing it out of the bay. I was so relieved. I don't, I, as I remember, I had to just sit down. At that point, my, my legs would not even support me. After the ship got past us, Ronald showed up with the fisherman, carried us to shore. Max took the first plane to the Bahamas to meet the Maya Express. We had the ship taken to the Bahamas. The thief knew that we were taking it to the Bahamas, actually had the huspa to show up at the court action. The judge told him, you are lucky I don't have you thrown in jail right here and now. The judge put the ship up for auction, and this time the pirate had to buy it legally. But when it comes to the high seas, traditional laws, they don't always apply. Well, except for maybe karma. About a year and a half later, apparently the ship was on an illegal voyage of some kind and sank off the coast of Venezuela, and I think two men died. 
you can't get enough of Max's tales of high sea adventure, well, he's written a book, Seized. We'll have a link on snapjudgment.org. Many thanks to Mitzi Mock for producing this story. You are listening to Snap Judgment, the Crossing Borders episode. We have just gotten started. Stay tuned. to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR. And on this episode, we're crossing borders. And when you start getting into it, you'll notice that these borders, they're everywhere. They're words, they're signs, they're wires that say, you should not be here. This is not for you. Alfredo Corchado knew the Mexican-American border as a malleable thing, even as a young child. He crossed into the U.S. from Mexico to help his father work in the farms of California. Most of us would work in the fields, including my brothers, to try to save up money for the closing, new pants, new shirts for the fall school year. One day, one afternoon, a TV crew comes up and they're looking for kids. For me, it really, I think, inspired me that someone was trying to give me a voice, that someone cared about that how I felt about working in the fields at a time when uh, there was not enough clean drinking water, there were not enough toilets outside, that we didn't have a break for lunch or breakfast. That became kind of an inspiration for later years. When I told my parents that, that I would actually become a journalist, they were both very happy, but my father made a comment to me at the time and says, look, you know, whatever you do, just don't cover drug trafficking. Don't get involved in organized crime. I now mostly cover organized crime and drug trafficking. I know it's the most dangerous area, region for journalists. The very first time that I felt my personal life was in danger, I felt personally threatened. The assignment was find out who's killing so many women in Juarez. In my investigation, started looking into a criminal organization that was part of the Juarez cartel. But we zeroed in on on this group as being responsible for some of the killings. One of my sources for that story was an attorney, Dante Almaraz, who was known as basically the devil's attorney because his clients were mostly drug traffickers. So the article runs shortly after uh, a phone, a cell phone call comes in, and it's a strange voice, a man's voice. And he says, I know exactly where you are right now. I said, who's this? And he said, I'm right behind you on such and such street. And I just froze. I hung up the phone. I looked around. There were all these cars. You don't know who's, who's there or if there is a person. I just started running. I realized that Dante's office was three or four blocks from there. So I just ran and ran until I got to Dante's office. The devil's attorney. There's an old saying in Mexico, and that's uh, better the devil you know than the devil you don't know. And at the time, I felt like I knew him, and I, I would trust him, you know, more than the devil I didn't know. The only thing on my mind was, how do I get back to the U.S. side of the border? I mean, how do I get back to El Paso? I said, Dante, how do I get back? And he says, well, you know, it's just a few blocks. I said, I know exactly where I am, but I'm not sure I want to walk. And he says, well, get in the cajuela, and we'll take you back. And... A cajuela, it's a trunk, but in this case, it was the compartment of his SUV. I'll get you in the back, I'll drive to the border, and you'll be in front of the bridge and just run to the U.S. side. And at the time, you know, I did it without any hesitation. I said, okay, let's do it. He just threw, he threw a cover on me. He said, just 
stay low and he closes the door and as he as he closed the compartment I, you know it, it runs through my mind you know what if this guy's taking me to the bad guys and you're thinking you're debating and next thing you know he says adios i run for the border and you're just running i mean you're just trying to get to the u.s side when i got to the top of the bridge i looked back i saw juarez i just had like a huge grin this realization that this is what reporting on drug trafficking is all about. You know, I wasn't sure that I liked it, but that was the beginning of my new beat. Our situation as American correspondents hails in comparison to what our colleagues in Mexico face. My big advantage is that I have a blue passport that says, you know, United States of America. I can call my boss and I can say, Tim, I don't feel safe. And he'll say, you know, just get to the U.S. side. I mean, at that point, I felt that anywhere on the U.S. side of the border was safer than anywhere on the, on the Mexican side of the border. Laredo became kind of the hangout. And it, it was a hangout because of security reasons. We knew people. We felt comfortable. We felt uh, very much at ease. We decided to get together for, for drinks at a place called the Agave Azul in Laredo, Texas. I want to say it was a Thursday night, and we're supposed to meet other friends, all of them journalists. There's music playing, Mexican pop music. You obviously had journalists, you had federal agents, you had politicians, and then you had the more shady characters. People who I thought were, were probably members of drug gangs. And I had been interviewing a source of mine, a U.S. intelligence source, and then I met these guys for dinner. And as I'm there with my colleagues, these um, guys who clearly look like uh, they were members of some gang walk in, and one of them, the guy in the middle, looks to me and he takes his, um, his hand and makes the gun signal. And I cocks it twice, you know, like bam, bam. And I just looked at him and wasn't sure what to, what to uh, think. He was pointing at me. Ramon, my colleague from Nuevo Laredo, says that this guy just do what I think he did. We're leaving. Waiter comes up with a tray, a couple of tequilas, and he says, these are for you. And I looked at him, I said, you must be mistaken. No, these are for you. From that gentleman in the other corner, I looked up and I see this guy and he raises his glass. I asked the waiter, I said, what kind of tequila is this? The guy says, Don Julio. And if you know anything about tequila, you know that Don Julio is one of the top premiums. And I thought, okay, we'll just, you know, we'll have a shot. So I just raised my glass. And then suddenly I feel this guy's hand over my shoulder and he starts talking to me in Spanish and he says, you know, I'm, I'm so happy that you're here. And he says, you know, problems surface when you start asking too many questions, things can get kind of crazy. And if they have to, they will kidnap you, take you to an isolated ranch, cut you into little pieces and put you in a barrel full of acid. And at that time, it doesn't matter who you know, not even the agent you saw earlier today. But we'll, we'll be humane about it. Imagine how many parents are out there who don't know what happened to their kids. In your case, we will record everything and we'll send it to your mother so she can have a video so she can rest in peace knowing that her son is dead. I'm, I'm, I'm panicked. I'm just, I, I, I feel terrorized. I, you know, you can't move. He said that the guys who pointed at you are outside. They're with me. And they're waiting for any, any sign, any signal from me to pick you up and take you. So don't do anything stupid. I did see, it was a black Escalade. It's parked outside with these guys inside and they're just staring at me. So I knew they were there. I couldn't walk away. When everything was clear, it was around midnight. We looked around and I didn't see the van anymore or the, uh, the Escalade where these guys were in. And I just threw them on, let's get out of here. And we left. I went back to my hotel room. I decided that I needed really to distance myself, that I needed to reevaluate priorities in life. And basically almost came to the conclusion that I needed to just get away from Mexico and needed to get away from uh, this kind of reporting and try to find something else. I was actually thinking of being like, you know, more of an entertainment reporter and maybe get into reviewing movies or even sports writing, something like that. That was the plan. And then February 1st of 2010, they had this horrific massacre where there were more than 30 people celebrating a young student's birthday. 
and they just started killing people indiscriminately. The majority of them were students, young kids who came from parents who, you know, really had big dreams for them. So when I showed up the next morning to begin my reporting, it really made me realize that um, this is so wrong. I mean, these were innocent, innocent kids. And I think that really shook me back into, into reality. You know, again, going back to why you get into journalism, I mean, I wanted to give others a voice. And these people were voiceless. Alfredo is the man. He's one of those hard-headed fellas that you read about uncovering the truth. He continues to cover drug trafficking and organized crime in Mexico for the Dallas Morning News. Many thanks to Andrew Becker and the Center for Investigative Reporting for assisting with that piece. It was produced by our own Anna Sussman. Borders, 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 borders matter. Our next story begins in a village in the Bulgarian countryside where Mimi Chakarova was raised. Her family crossed over to the U.S. after the fall of the Iron Curtain, but many of her friends, they weren't so lucky. Mimi Chakarova spent her young days raising chickens and climbing trees. I was surrounded by women who were very simple, very poor, but just full of love. And then I had a lot of girlfriends in the village as well. So it was a, a sense of a female community. After the collapse of communism, a lot of people left. Those who had opportunities to leave, like my parents, immigrated to other countries. Those who didn't have professional skills were also trying to get the hell out. When I was 13, my mom and I moved to the United States of America. They arrived in Baltimore. It was not what they expected from America. And we go to this one-room apartment, and we see these cockroaches scatter around. We're thinking, this can't be America. <laughs> Mimi bought a small camera to prove to her friends back in Bulgaria that America wasn't what they thought. And she took pictures of everyday life in Baltimore. Photography corresponded with truth. As a teenager, she returned to Bulgaria to visit all of her friends that she left behind. I visited my grandmother in the village, and I would ask about different girls in the village, and she would say, you know, well, this one went to Germany, and that one went to Italy, and, you know, her grandmother hasn't heard from her. Now we go to their house and speak with the relatives, with the grandmothers, and just say, how is it possible that she wouldn't send money home? What do you think happened? And there was this unspoken truth. What happened was there were a lot of agencies. They would offer promises of jobs in other countries to go to Italy or to Germany or to Israel and work as maids, taking care of the elderly, waitresses. And then there were others who signed up for jobs that didn't exist and they were sold into prostitution. The way sex trafficking works, these agencies would escort the woman to her destination, and then when the woman would be greeted at the airport, she would often see a transaction of money, cash being exchanged, and this is the price that someone is paying for her. But the moment that the woman protests is when the break-in period starts. Beating her, locking her without light, starving her, this whole story about sex trafficking in the Balkans is huge. I had been reading about this, and what bothered me the most about the coverage was images, mostly shot by men, pretending to be clients, and then going in and interviewing her and taking her picture. And the types of images that were coming out, women on hotel beds, loads and loads of makeup, skimpy lingerie, completely detached. Those types of images in my mind, they only perpetuate the stereotypes. Mimi became a photojournalist, and the images taken by men turning up in the national news continued to disturb her. They didn't show a complete woman, a relatable woman, 
just a sexed up thing the photographers had paid for, for an hour. If I am sitting here and I'm complaining, how can I do this better? And the answer in the beginning was going into the communities where these girls were coming from and taking photos of women who had escaped the sex trade, had returned to their villages, which is the same community that I came from. We grew up on the same stuff. We celebrated the same customs. We were the same people. I traveled to Moldova, which is a tiny little country. There was an estimate that nearly 200,000 women had been sold into prostitution. I met Vika. Vika was uh, trafficked to Dubai. Mimi spent months with the women who had escaped brothels, escaped slavery, learning their stories and taking their pictures. There were times when I would interview women. I would notice something. The way they would smoke their cigarette, the way they would sigh, look up, or it was something in their gestures. This needs to be a moving picture. So Mimi started filming her interviews. Vika, did you learn English there? No. What were the first words? How much? How much? And what else? Condom. And then Mimi realized it wasn't enough to interview the women after they had escaped. She needed to film the whole story. And she began to make a film called The Price of Sex, following the path that Vika and the other women had been forced into. I went undercover in the service of following this woman's story from beginning to end. I'm not interested in being trafficked. I'm not interested in being bought, but I, I want to be able to come as close to this as possible to understand how it works. But she knew going undercover as a prostitute in a brothel was dangerous. I consulted Joe Davidson, who is a former FBI agent, someone to just go down a list of what I should be prepared for. It sounded really scary. You always have to think of the what-ifs. Joe told me not to do it, and he was not alone. If it happened, if I was pulled into the back room and discovered what I was doing and someone decided to sell me, I would be gone in a few hours and no one would be able to find me again. It's a network which you, you, you don't want to mess with. Mimi came up with a plan. She tapped into the underground railroad of escaped women and their allies and found men who agreed to pretend they owned her as a prostitute. Then she put on a short skirt and high heels, a wig, lipstick, and a spy camera concealed in a cell phone. And together, they went underground to the clubs and brothels where enslaved women were rented out by the hour. Go into some basement. You go through five or six guys who look through your bag, you know, and go into some dark space and everybody is watching you. And you have to keep it cool. You have to pretend that you know exactly what you're doing, that you're not lost, that you're not scared. Even though inside you're falling apart. We were using night vision cameras. In the brothels, Mimi would film the transactions. Men bargaining for a price. And just like other women, she found a place that men could not go. I spent a lot of time in the bathroom because the bathroom is the only sanctuary for the women. So women would come in, they would change clothes, they would talk about the clients, they would have these conversations. So I would just be there, again, looking <laughs> strange because I'm holding this cell phone, but I'm holding it in a very peculiar position because I'm also filming. What was interesting for me is spending time with the women and watching them, watching their expressions seeing how miserable they looked. I always saw myself as them. The escaped slaves Mimi grew to know back in her homeland were emotionally destroyed, physically wounded, and cast out of their communities. Jenya, another woman Mimi interviewed, says she wished she'd never been born. And after eight years undercover, Mimi understood. And what I was going to say, which very few people know, is that, in my mind, I had already made up. If the worst thing happened, and I was on the verge of actually being sold, I would choose death. 
over that. I was 100% resolved to do that because I had interviewed too many women and knew I know how quickly you disappear. She worked on the film for eight years. She went undercover in the United Arab Emirates, Turkey, Albania, Moldova, and the Czech Republic. I wanted you to see them as human beings that have endured something that most of us, I have to say, probably could not even survive. It was an accident of fate that Mimi ended up a photojournalist and not a trafficked woman. But they came from the same place. And when she slid into a tight dress and put the makeup on, she became these women. And ultimately, being these women was her most powerful weapon. A weapon she turned on the traffickers, the pimps, and the clients to reveal the truth. Men, especially in red light districts, think of women as trash, cows, doormats. They think nothing of women. They would not imagine in a million years that there could be a woman who's pulling something like this off, who even is clever enough to devise a plan and enter their world and expose something. That story was produced in cooperation with the filmmaker Mimi Chakarova. We just can't thank her enough for sharing her life's work with SNAP. If hearing those clips from Mimi's documentary, The Price of Sex, makes you want to dig deeper, check out our website or thepriceofsex.org for information on the film and multimedia exhibits. Thanks again to our own Anna Sussman. You're listening to the Crossing Borders episode. And we're going to be right back. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. I'm Glenn Washington, and when you immigrate from one country to another, however you do it, it is not a move made lightly. It's a move with consequence. And sometimes, most of the times, those consequences are unexpected. Our own Stephanie Fu spoke to Pilar and asked for her story. Pilar and her family may have been poor, but they had each other. She loved her five siblings and her mother, but her real hero was her father. When she was five, he'd gotten out of Mexico City to America, where he lived a glamorous life and sent back money for his family. We never talked to him. We only knew that he loved us through letters. And every time the mail came and all my brothers and I would gather around my mother and read those beautiful letters. And I remember him calling me um, his little princess and things like that. He was my role model. I was born with a dislocated hip, so I limp when I walk. I was young and I, I always wanted to wear high heels. So I figured, okay, if I go to United States, my dad might help me to get a surgery and then, you know, get that fixed. She thought of the opportunities in America and couldn't wait to sashay down the American streets in high heels with her handsome American father. And I looked at myself in the mirror and pretended that I speak English. You know, it was something that I really wanted so bad. Pilar found her father's number and called him. She had never actually spoken to him since he left. And then I asked my dad, Dad, can you help me go to the United States so I can have my surgery? And then he said, oh, okay, that's fine. And then that's when I told my mom. And my mom just like, she cried and she said, Mija, don't go. Please, don't go. But Pilar was 18 
and nothing could change her mind. Her father bought her a plane ticket from Mexico City to Tijuana and said that he would meet her at the airport. He looked quite different, you know, he looked smaller. <laughs> it wasn't the person I was expecting to see. Her father seemed colder than she remembered him, of course. He didn't want a reunion, he just wanted to go. Then he said, okay, are you ready? I'm like, I'm ready for what? And then he said, we're gonna cross the border and we're gonna cross illegally. Pilar didn't know what that meant. Her father had a green card, so she thought that he would have a visa waiting. So the next day in the morning, we got in a truck. He had brought it from the United States. They drove the truck up to the border crossing, trying to act casual. So when we tried to cross, they stopped us and they say, okay, where are you going? And then they asked me something in English. And of course, I didn't know anything in English. And then they said, get out the car. I was already shaking. I'm like, what's going to happen to me? Then one of the immigration ladies say, okay, you come with me. They separated Pilar from her father and took her to a room to interrogate her. The immigration officer got her gun out and put it on my, my head and said, you don't tell me your name, I'm going to kill you right here. And I'm like, no. I couldn't lie. I mean, I never had a person put in a I never even seen a gun in my life. And then I told her, my name is this person, and he's my dad. The officers accepted her confession and convicted her. They threw her in immigration jail. There were children crying because they were hungry, and the officer decided, you don't make those kids stop. Nobody's going to eat. So they didn't feed us. They just show us the food and put it on the side. And the way they treated us, it was very, you know, it was very sad. They don't know that, that we have dreams. After two days, they released Pilar in Tijuana. Her father was already waiting for her there. The first thing he said to her was, It's all your fault. It's all your fault. They gave him a $5,000 fine. And then he told me, you're going to pay me all that money. You know, I'm like, something's wrong with this person. How a person that say they love me on all those letters will put me through something like this? So then I finally asked him, why do we have to do this? This is so dangerous. And then he said, do you want to have the surgery? Yes or no? And then I said, yes. Pilar's father paid for a coyote to guide her under a fence, across the border, through the desert, and into San Diego. Pilar walked through the desert twice, and twice she was caught, beaten, and thrown in jail. She watched as other immigrants were screamed at and beaten by police. She said that they shot at anyone who tried to run. And just when she began to think that nothing could be worth all this, Pilar met a woman in the jail who told her that she was going about it all wrong. At the California border, the patrol would leave during shift changes, leaving the border unguarded for five minutes. She said, They ask you anything, you're telling you're going to buy chicken. And then she showed me how to pronounce chicken. Pilar's father drove her to the California border and said that this was her last chance. If she made it, he'd be waiting at the McDonald's across the street from the border patrol. So Pilar waited and watched the first guard leave. She knew she had minutes. She told herself to move her feet, but they seemed stuck. She was too scared. Seconds ticked by, and she finally forced herself to start walking. So as soon as I was crossing, there's a guard coming in there. And then he asked me, where are you going? And then I said, I need chicken. <laughs> and then he said, okay, go ahead. And then I cross, and then I run to the McDonald's. And then I hide into McDonald's bathroom. And then I start crying, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I finally made it. After two hours, Pilar's father showed up. They drove to San Mateo, where he lived, and they pulled up in front of a lovely house. But before they walked in, he stopped her. He told me, okay, you're going to say that you are my cousin. I can't say that you're my daughter, because she doesn't know. And I'm like, who is she? She said, well, I'm, I'm Mary, and I have another family. And then that's when I learned, you know, that that all this beautiful story that my mom had created, it wasn't true. 
Her father had never sent her a single letter. Her mother had forged every one of them. As soon as I could call my mom, I told her. Then she started crying and she said, I, I mean, I loved your dad so much. I couldn't tell you guys that he had abandoned us. And then my mom asked me, please don't tell your brothers and sisters because I don't want them to hate him. Two weeks later, he told me, you have to go. And the sooner, the better. And I said, oh my gosh, where am I going to go? I don't, have, I don't know anybody here. I don't speak the language. What am I going to do? I mean, I help you to come here. I didn't promise you I was going to take care of you or any of that. So I just grabbed my stuff, and then I just kept walking. She found a park and hid in the bathroom. At night, the janitor locked her in. For two weeks, Pilar went to ESL school in the daytime and hid in the bathroom at night. Sometimes a teacher will give me a cookie or something. I remember one day um, I was on the bench and this lady approached to me and said, why are you crying? You always look so lonely and sad. And then I couldn't hold it and I told her, because I don't have a place to leave. I'm sleeping in the bathroom on San Mateo Park. And she said, no, you can't stay there. The woman let Pilar stay with her for free. She spoke Spanish, and she became Pilar's first friend. Her roommate even helped her find a potential job. And there's this couple that they're looking for a housekeeping living, but they only pay $300 a month. I'm like, hook me up with them. So she took me with this amazing couple. My life from that day changed. This, is, this was a mansion. The house had 15 bathrooms. And with the money that were paying me, oh my God, for me, it was a lot of money. The couple, Mr. and Mrs. Miller, thought Pilar was a hard worker. And every month, they raised her pay. She even started thinking about maybe getting her surgery again. But one day, Pilar's father showed up at her school. He had heard that she was working now, and he said, I just wanted to see how you were doing, and then I wanted to remind you that you owe me some money. And then I'm like... I was in shock. It was like somebody was throwing me a bucket of water. <laughs> he wanted me to pay the fine, the $5,000, the airplane ticket, and the money he spent with the coyote. So then I told him, but the coyote then never helped me. I crossed by myself. So I had to pay him $15,000 back. Pilar mailed her father the payments because she was afraid that if she didn't, he might turn her into authorities. But thankfully, Pilar became close to the Millers, who thought of her as part of the family. Months later, she learned enough English to finally tell them her story at the dinner table. They were so proud of her that as a gift, they gave her the rest of the money to completely pay off her father. And I did, and I felt proud of that because I don't, I don't know anything to that man. It's been 20 years since Pilar crossed and she never got her surgery. Instead, she used the money to give herself the life she always wanted. A nice car, I have a beautiful husband, <laughs> three kids, I'm a Girl Scout leader. But now, what she wants more than anything is the only thing she can't have, her papers. If she was a citizen, Pilar could cross the border again and visit Mexico. Pilar realizes what her father could never have known, that their real wealth was what they left behind. So if you had to make a choice again, would you still cross? No. No, I wouldn't. I would stay with my poor family, happy, <laughs> struggling maybe every day, but in a secure, loving place. I was sent off to the emerging crisis in Darfur, in Sudan. I found myself in North Darfur, horrendous scenes of ethnic cleansing, hundreds of thousands of people living in, in refugee camps, and one of which had 120,000 people in it. James Shepard Barron 
spent his past 25 years traveling all over the world as a humanitarian aid worker. He's worked in war zones, refugee camps, places where lives hang in the balance of violence, malnutrition, and as James saw in the Darfur crisis, the spread of disease. Into that scenario, polio appeared, a dangerously spreading virus. And you've got to do something about it or it will only get worse. To prevent the virus from spreading, James and his team would have to travel from the capital of Sudan to territory controlled by opposition forces. But convincing the rebels into letting them vaccinate the children would be tricky. From the side of the border that we were on, we were the enemies. As we started off in the morning, we got into our convoy, and then we were on our own, set off across the desert. It's no man's land, you've crossed one front line, you know you're driving up to another front line, and you know that there are mines around, but you can't see any. Just at the moment when I was thinking, I can't go any further, we'd better stop here. A white Toyota Land Cruiser with the back cut off and replaced with a what looked like a 35 or even 70 millimeter cannon on the back, drove out in a cloud of dust and stopped rapidly in front of us. The rebels heard that James and his team had entered into the area and decided to introduce themselves. Everybody but the drivers were blindfolded, and we were taken into the middle of the desert. As they drove through the desert, James and his colleagues tried to stay calm. They had brought along a translator, and they knew the rebels were taking them to meet their leader. When the convoy finally stopped, blindfolds were ripped off their faces, and James heard orders demanding that he and his team walk forward with their hands facing out. There are a couple of carpets spread in the sand, in the shade of a small stunted tree. That was the only shade there was. There was an older man with a big bushy white beard and white clothing and white turban. He turned out to be the rebel leader and he signaled to me to sit down, but then he sent the others back. So I sat on the carpet next to him and I thought, well, this is interesting, it's just him and me. At which point it became clear there were about 30 rebels around us who'd been kind of concealed on the desert floor in the sand who got up and drew closer and sat down in a circle with their guns pointing at me. They're all in uniform, they've all got shamags wrapped around their heads, they're all wearing sunglasses. All you can see is beards, white teeth, sunglasses, bullets, guns and telephones hanging around their necks. The rebel leader spoke perfect English, and he pointed to a cooler James had brought to the carpet. It was full of plastic vials. He said, this stuff is poison. You are coming to poison me. How dare you bring it here to poison my children? Why should I not kill you here and now? James knew there was only one way to convince the leader that the vials were safe he'd have to take one himself. I said, this, you know, this is not poison from the enemy. This is a, a vaccine. And to prove it, you can take any one at random of these files and, and, and tip it uh, into my mouth and I'll drink it. But if you do that, you choose one and I'll break it and tip it into your mouth so that your soldiers can see that it's not a poison. At, at which point his guards got particularly nervous and started cocking their guns. It was getting late in the day and the tree provided little relief from the sun. Negotiations crawled to a standstill, and as the hours passed by, James began wondering about his team waiting in the sweltering desert heat. That's when he came up with an idea. So I had some oranges with me, and it was clear when I mentioned oranges that their eyes lit up because they had obviously not seen fresh fruit for a while. And I said, if you give it to me, this vaccine, I'll give you an orange, and don't eat all of it because when I give this vaccine to you, it'll taste disgusting and you'll want the orange to take the taste away. And at that, he laughed. I mean, belly laughed. I mean, he thought this was hysterically funny. So he picked out the vaccine. He broke the cap off it and I tipped my head back and he dropped it in and then sat back watching me saying, right, now you're going to die. Well, I'm not. And I, it's been 10 minutes. And I'm still not dead and I'm fine. So now I'm going to give it to you because that's what we agreed. And now it was a matter of pride, because I was going to give it to him. He wasn't going to give it to himself. He could not lose face in front of his soldiers, because they'd heard him agree. I broke the file, and I dripped it into his mouth. And he spat most of it out. Within seconds, he said, right, you know, it, this is fine, you know, it's fine. He then called his guard in, and he said, I want to give every one of them an orange. And I said, but you can't have one until I can see my people, because they need to come and 
celebrate. We eventually gave everybody an orange and basically we had a little celebration. We were given permission to open up um, for three weeks to get in the cold chain, get in the polio vaccine and a campaign of sorts to eradicate polio in North Darfur got underway. James Shepard Barron now works as a disaster management consultant and has written a new survival guide based upon his experiences. He covers everything from landing an aircraft without a pilot to evading an attacking hippo. Now his book is called, the book is really called this, wait for it, wait for it, here it comes. This is the actual title. Everything that follows is based on recent real life experience that has been proven to work. Professional survival solutions. Better get yourself a copy, Editor James, but you can go to our website, snapjudgment.org, to find out more information about James. That piece was produced by Mitzi Mock and Mark Ristich. Now, this episode was produced by myself, but never alone. Please join me in a rapturous round of applause for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Shake it up. Stephanie, catch me if you can, fool. Shake it up. Anna, leave me alone, Sussman. Rita, how dare you, Daniels? Shake it up. Will can't touch this Urbina, and Mitzi can't stand the rain mock. It ain't snapping to the super sexy snap production Shake crew says so. Pat City Miller, Renzo Gorio, and Natalia Yeager. And when the weather's nice, you know, folk like to sit outside, maybe have a, a nice barbecue. And if you're ever wondering, who is that over there holding the plate, trying to look all casual, don't worry. That's the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Please give them some of the brisket and our thanks. Much love, the CPB. Ham and burger, ticks and tacks, public and media. You know what they all have in common? Why, it's the Public Radio Exchange, putting the public in public media, prx.org. And even though this is not the news, well, it is certainly not the news. In fact, you could have this guy who loves fruit, who crosses borders and hands out fruit, who plants fruit. And people could make songs about him and think that he was okay later on when they thought he was weird during his lifetime. You could have all that, friends, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR. <laughs>